0: Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer podcast, brought to you from the Granite podcast studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, where we will be discussing a range of topical matters engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts, but invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at activistlawyer.com, as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack a host of issues. My name is Sarah Henry and I'm a solicitor practising in Uri City. I worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. I'm looking forward to meeting some fantastic guests throughout this series. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm here with Jack in the studio here in sunny Uri today. Um, I just want to say thank you to everybody for their comments uh, regarding our last podcast Recording which was with Professor Colin Harvey. We've had such good feedback.
1: It's it's been amazing so far, so thank you everybody.
0: Thank you. We really appreciate that and we appreciate everyone for supporting the podcast and we hope to bring you some amazing guests going forward. And none other than Larry Donnelly, who is a lecturer in NUIG, which is National University of Ireland Galway, who will speak to us about US-themed issues that we've touched on a little bit in the show. Just a brief introduction, and Larry really goes into his uh, work in this episode himself. Larry is from Boston, has still held on very tightly to his accent, which is fantastic. And he teaches legal skills modules at undergraduate and postgraduate levels, and is the founder and director of the School of Law's highly regarded clinical legal education programme. He presents conference papers and publishes law journals, articles in Ireland and internationally on legal education and comparative law. He's also an attorney with substantial experience of practice before the state and federal bars of Massachusetts. Interestingly, Larry is very active in politics and government and contributes regularly to various media outlets on politics, current affairs and law in the United States. He also worked as a manager for some period of time in the Public Interest Law Alliance, PILA, with which I'm familiar, a Dublin-based project of the Free Legal Advice Centres, which seeks to expand the use of law in the public interest and for the benefit of marginalized and disadvantaged people in Ireland. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. We had a good time yeah, working on it, Jack. Very, very um, good putting it together and I know Larry personally because he taught me many many years back so I was a little bit shy (laughs) at the (laughs) beginning I still felt like a student it took me back to my early days in Galway but it was so fantastic to have him here and you know for anybody who doesn't follow him he writes in the journal very frequently and he's very vocal on Twitter as well just um, have a look at what he's he has to say and I hope you enjoy enjoy today's show Thank you. So, hi everybody. We've touched on US themes in past recordings, legal matters, political matters, and some of the headline-grabbing situations witnessed in the US across the world. Um, So have things settled any? Today we hear from an expert commentator and lawyer. We're interested in finding out more about Biden's first 100 days in office, the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the Derek Chauvin trial, And yes, we're going back back there again to Trump, just about his legacy and really how a new political landscape in America influences matters here in our part of the world. And we're joined by Larry Donnelly. Welcome, Larry.
2: Great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much. So we'll just get stuck in. You've been writing extensively, Larry. um, Mostly uh, we've read a lot of your articles published in the journal but one milestone that you have written about recently and commented on has been President Biden who's been in office I think did you say a to 107 j- days me jack so a just show. just over the 100 day mark and I remember watching this milestone when it was Trump a f- few years back it seems like it wasn't that long ago but it was quite deflating and I felt a bit disheartened watching that um so just to kick us off are you more hopeful Larry for America now that Biden is in office and what has he been busy with over the last few months?
2: Well, I mean, I think on some fronts, I'm, I'm more hopeful. I think America faces a broad range of challenges, uh, both at home and overseas, um, that I think, you know, Biden has a, his plate very full. Uh, that having been said, I, I think there's, you know, good reason for encouragement, uh, both as to the substance of what he's done and the style in which he has done it. Uh, I think on the latter point with respect to style, he's been um, very much more a quieter president so far than Donald Trump. Uh, And I think in many ways that's uh, been welcomed by a lot of people who, you know, were worried about what Donald Trump might do or say next. I think that that's been quite deliberate uh, in terms of how he's conducted himself and how he's governed. Um, At the same time, he has uh, undertaken a lot. I mean, there was a flurry of executive orders. Um, at the start of his presidency, some of which was to undo things um, that Donald Trump had done, notably, uh, for instance, around the Paris Climate Change mm-hmm. uh, Accord and recommitting the United States to taking something of uh, a leadership role uh, on climate change. Uh, and I think a lot of people around the world would have welcomed that. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the also his his plate has been full at home too, in terms of combating uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, and also seeking to re- stimulate the economy, mm-hmm. so uh, he's been busy, although he's been quiet.
0: Yeah, and he's really inherited quite a lot from the former presidency. You know, probably more than than most, especially in our our lifetime. And he was very careful to appoint uh, um, administration based on their experience as well. So it's kind of refreshing to see people who are actually engaged in the particular matter that they're covering like climate change that you mentioned there is very very prominent. So that must be, I mean, Trump had a completely different approach when it came to appointing, you know, his members of staff and it was very very chaotic for a while. People were being sacked left, right and center. So hopefully we'll see some kind of level of stability there as well. And you, you know, obviously, living in Ireland yourself, that um, during the recent presidential election, the press here really extensively covered Joe Biden and his Irish roots. People were laying claim to the president across the island here in Urie. I don't know if you know this, we have a massive banner erected to Joe Biden because his ancestors left these shores to go to America. Carlingford again, another big banner. So... We've already witnessed brief statements and commentary from both Biden himself and certain congressmen and women regarding the recent turbulence in Northern Ireland and also commenting on the US's commitment to uphold the Good Friday Agreement. So I'm just keen to hear from you in terms of a post-Brexit Northern Ireland with the topic of Irish unity looming here. How do you feel Biden will contribute to shape politics here? Or will he?
2: Well, I I think that the starting point has to be that uh, I think that Joe Biden's very fond feelings for uh, Ireland are, are really, uh, you know, that they're hot felt and they're strong. He is mm-hmm. not taking this. I, I had an uncle of mine who served in Congress for a long time with Joe Biden. And I asked him, you know, how serious is Biden about this stuff? Uh, and my uncle responded that he was deadly serious, that he means that Ireland and the Irish people are lucky to have an ally uh, as president of the United States. Now, I think it's really important to, to, to point out that um, in a time when a lot of people are saying that Irish-American influence is declining, uh, the extent to which uh, Brexit and the potential threat to the Good Friday Agreement and the potential threat to uh, perhaps peace on this island uh, has galvanized uh, Irish-American political leadership um, both republican and democrat and in fact um, it's quite extraordinary that the congressional friends of ireland grouping um, their position with respect to the good friday agreement uh and the you know the the, the they're saying that look uh, effectively the, the uk will not get a trade deal uh with the united states if um, there is any negative fallout from this, um, they've elevated that not just to their position, but it's become the position of the House of Representatives and of the United States Senate. Uh, and that's quite extraordinary. Uh, and then when you have a president in Joe Biden who is uh, so demonstrably committed uh, to peace, um, and I think, let, let's be frank about it, demonstrably committed to uh, a, a United Island, uh, I think that that is a very, very interesting um, development uh, on that front. Of course, the UK is a long-time friend. He's not going to do anything yes. to jeopardise that relationship. But uh, mm-hmm. I think we know where Joe Biden's heart lies.
0: Yeah, it's it's so, so noticeably different, isn't it? Just even the language emanating from the White House around this. Um, and Larry, you yourself, you are an attorney, attorney in Boston. Um, and we can't really speak to you without commenting on the recent Chauvin um, trial in, in America covering the the murder of George Floyd. Jack here in our office has been our little fount of, of knowledge and information around that. <laughs> so oh, give <laughs> a few questions Jack.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I'm uh, as well versed in it as you Larry but uh, we've seen that you've written on this matter extensively and I was wondering could you explain to the people listening just the charges against mm. um, Derek Chauvin and how the jury reached their verdict and how this differs from um, previous cases of police killing, um, on black victims in the U.S. and why this is this was so different to those previous cases.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, uh, I think before we get to the broader cultural issues, it's really important uh, to make the point in turn from a legal point of view um, that people talk about the American approach to different things, and in America, this is a crime or this isn't a crime. Um, and it's really important to get the point across that really there is no American approach on anything. Um, there are 50 different states, all of which have very different approaches to uh, the law. Uh, mm-hmm. And in most instances, these criminal char- trials that we see, they are governed by state and local laws. Now, under the law of Minnesota, uh, effectively, the- Derek Chauvin was charged with a menu uh, of homicide um, uh, charges. Uh, from which the jury could pick. He was charged with two counts of murder, uh, murder in the second degree and murder in the third degree, neither of which required an intentional killing, uh, and then uh, manslaughter, which effectively required gross negligence, uh, and which resulted in the taking of a life. Mm -hmm. So he faced all three charges, and the jury could pick from the menu effectively as to what they wanted. Uh, Now, in the end, as we all know, he was convicted of all three. Beforehand, there had been some skepticism about that tactic by the prosecution because uh, we've seen a litany of cases in which police officers have been charged uh, with very heinous offenses that have resulted in the death uh, of suspects, et cetera, uh, and been acquitted uh, by juries. So there was some uh, reticence among criminal lawyers as to whether um, Chauvin had been overcharged uh, with the murder count because of the way juries have come forward and because— Uh, what's seen as a prejudice that jurors arrive into cases with. That is, they conceive of murder as nothing more, nothing less than the intentional killing uh, of someone, and that perhaps this could cause difficulties for the prosecution. Uh, As it turned out, uh, in light of the evidence that came forward at trial, uh, I think that the jury reached the only conclusion that they possibly could have, mm-hmm. and from my point of view, uh, I think that you know a lot of attention was paid on the medical evidence uh, and you know whether it was drugs in his system or whether it was the actions of Mr. Chauvin that caused uh, the tragic death uh, of, uh, of George Floyd. Uh, in my view, the, the the jury was probably more swayed than anything. This is an American context, more swayed by anything by the fact that his fellow cops didn't rally around Derek Chauvin. This is really unprecedented. Usually they defend their own. And most tellingly, when his own police chief said that what he did was contrary to the training, contrary to the ethos, contrary to everything that they tried to instill uh, as a department and everything they stand for, uh, I think that that, more than anything, probably put the nail uh, in Derek Derek Chauvin's case. Um, Now, in terms of the broader issues that uh, it implicates, um, there are lots of them. Uh, the one thing I would say in short uh, is that there's obviously a, a long and tortured history uh, of the African American experience with the criminal justice system. Uh, I hope that in one small way that this is at least a start, a start uh, in terms of restoring some faith and uh, credibility of African Americans in uh, the U.S. criminal justice system.
0: Absolutely. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I suppose, well, this question probably is based on an American approach, but just about that intersection of politics and criminal justice. I know you've uh, touched on it before in some of your writings. The system is unique and difficult to understand, probably for Americans and and for us looking on. Why do you think there's such an overlap between politics and justice? And again, I suppose you've just answered in terms of what will happen in, in that regard in the wake of this verdict?
2: Yeah, I, it, it's a very interesting question, a very interesting point. I think at one level it's rooted uh, in an American understanding of uh, the role of the people and the power of the people and that uh, the people ultimately uh, would constitute the democracy and people should elect um, representatives in all levels. And, and I think that that, is, that ideal, as it were, uh, has crossed over without thinking, I think in some respects, uh, into the criminal justice system where we see um, prosecutors who are elected, uh, mm-hmm. and not only that, perhaps more disturbingly to people on this side, this side of the world, uh, the judges uh, are also uh, in many instances uh, elected. And you have to raise questions. For instance, in the, the Chauvin trial, um, the attorney general of Minnesota uh, himself an African American, himself an ambitious Democratic politician, took control uh, of this case. Uh, now I'm sure he's been a long time a campaigner for racial justice. I'm sure there was some good motivations in there. But at the same time, uh, one can't summarily dismiss the fact that he could have eyed this with wall-to-wall media coverage, international media coverage as a political opportunity as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think we can be disturbed about that while, while at the same time thinking that the jury reached the correct conclusion. We can be disturbed by that element of it. And, and a further element of it, I think we can be disturbed by, uh, is the media coverage of mm-hmm. it in which effectively throughout the trial, people are saying all sorts of things from the get-go, including media pundits and then most disturbingly uh, politicians who, you know, on the eve of trial, uh, you know, the president himself contacted uh, George Floyd's family before a decision was issued. Um, That's just unthinkable uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, And I think that, you know, again, my point being uh, this trial, while again, uh, a lot of us probably take some gratitude, some gratification from the verdict, it did throw up a lot of what uh, a lot of us find deeply troubling uh, about the administration of justice in the United States.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, Larry, we were actually coming on from your point about Biden speaking just before the verdict came out. um, People in my class, obviously I'm studying law and we've been taught about the separation of powers between the different branches in our society and how important that is to have that separation. And once Biden came out and spoke about the trial and I think he said about the the right outcome that he hopes for the right outcome. Yes. We were kind of stumped in our group mm-hmm. chat. People were writing in they couldn't believe that he had said that, and they were wondering. I know that the the jury probably didn't hear it at that point, but do you think that was a significant part? Him coming out and saying saying that just before the verdict came out, especially with the separation of powers that we know
2: here. Well, yes, and I, I think that this is going to be reflected in the appeal, which has already been filed yeah, by Mr. Chauvin, exactly. Um Is is that the is that the this this, this happened? And I should note um, that you know President Biden's actions, I think, were 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 wrong. I think they were misguided. Um, but I don't think they were as egregious as, for instance, uh, a Congresswoman Maxine Waters uh, again, while the jury had the case said that anything short of three conv- convictions on all three counts would be cause for African Americans to take the fight a step further and take things further within the cities. Uh, if, a, if that's not a veiled mm-hmm. uh, threat as to what should happen, I don't know what is. Um, now, that is a real violation, uh, in my view, uh, of the separation of powers. Uh, and when it comes to, the, to this appeal, uh, all of this stuff will be in the offing in particular because uh, the judge refused to sequester the jurors. Uh, he said to them, you know, don't watch TV, don't watch the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be quite frank, in you know an era when news and media permeates every aspect of our lives, I, I think that's a laughable uh, assumption to think that even if they wanted to avoid uh, coverage of the trial, that they could. Uh, So I think that, you know, again, one of the things and again, this Congresswoman Maxine Waters, the president, Joe Biden, um, they dearly wanted the outcome. I think there's no question about that that we've reached. It would be ironic if due to their willful uh, disregarding of the separation of powers that they were in some respects uh, accountable for an appeal that could well succeed uh, and perhaps uh, a trial having to happen all over again.
0: Wow. So there's lots of food for thought there, even just about the process and the system itself. And I mean, I I could spend hours trying to figure it out. And you're right about, um, you know, different rules and laws applying to different states. But just moving on a little bit culturally then, um, I know you said there, you know, this is one, one step in the right direction. But Overall, how do you think things will change? Will the movement around Black Lives Matter grow in the wake of this verdict? And how do you think other families or can they even contemplate accessing justice, you know, for their um, family members who lost their lives in similar circumstances?
2: Yeah, it, it's it's a really good question. It's one that's very tough to answer. I mean, the, the, the issue of race is probably the most vexed one that has faced the United States uh, since its foundation. Uh, and one that we haven't fully come to grips with yet, clearly. Um, I do think that in the wake, particularly uh, of George Floyd's killing, uh, I do think that there have been conversations uh, around the United States about race. I know from even speaking to some of my own friends, conversations about race, uh, and I suppose an awakening among white America as to what it's like to be uh, a person of color in the United States. I do think that some of these haven't happened before, uh, and that they are happening now. Uh, what I would really be mindful of in all of this is um, to encourage dialogue, because there is race, uh, and there is race and policing. Uh, and race and policing is a very complicated uh, matter in lots of instances. And if we are really going to move forward on this front, uh, it can't be just one side. Black Lives Matter has made a huge contribution to raising consciousness, and their mobilizing has had a huge effect. But we need to have a dialogue. There needs to be a dialogue between communities of color uh, and police on the ground throughout the United States uh, as to both of their perspectives. Mm-hmm. And you know, one does one you know one does not need to be uh, a bigot or a racist to have some sympathy with the position of some of the police mm-hmm. who, let's face it, are are charged with with keeping the peace in areas where crime rates are very high and where they are often seen as the enemy. There needs to be a better dialogue, and one of the things I've always thought in terms of improving the racial climate, much of which uh, I think is uh, invoked by or, or, or flares up around issues of race and policing, one of the things that I really think has to happen is that in these areas we need more police who are from those areas, and who look more like the people uh, Mm. who they are, uh, again, uh, trying to keep safe in most instances. Uh, I think that that has to be a fundamental part uh, of the discussion. Uh, But I think that this broader issue of race uh, is one we need to continue uh, to come to terms with yeah. but in my view uh, it's going to be solved through dialogue not through uh, one side talking at the other. I think It needs to be an exchange uh, of information, exchange of experience, an exchange hopefully um, that will produce positive outcomes but it's going to take a long, long time.
0: It'll take a while but as you say at least this is a step forward So, talking about going forward and <laughs> bringing us back a little bit yeah. um, to um, perhaps darker days Trump as we know is gone from the White House but not necessarily gone <laughs> I think this week was it only yesterday or the day before, I think I heard about this new platform or some kind of blog or something Um, has been created by him and his team. So having influenced politics, and I think it's fair to say he has in some respect, and society, communities across America to take hold of their patriotism, rally against the administration, we have noticed here as well, countries across the world, many in Europe, saw the rise of nationalism at the same time Trumpism became further embedded into American politics and society. So I'm interested just in your perspective around that, um, Larry, just about his legacy. So the Trump legacy, I suppose it relates to the earlier question that you just spoke on. And how or will we see him again in a political setting? <laughs> Not sure. Well,
2: I, you know, my, my, own, my own guess is that we're unlikely to see Donald Trump back uh, in an elected uh, position. But that does not mean that he will not con- continue to wield considerable influence. Okay. Um, again, one of the things specifically about Trump, and I'll get to the broader thing you mentioned in a minute. One of the things about Trump is you have to give the devil his due. Uh, he ran for he began his presidential campaign in 2015, and had to pay people to show up to clap for him uh, when he made his <laughs> announcement. He was his. His campaign was uh, – a number of media outlets refused to campaign uh, – re- refused to cover his campaign as serious news and in- instead put it in the entertainment section at first. Uh, and he was running against 16 candidates, all of whom, whether you like their politics or not, were accomplished uh, office holders and business people, et cetera, um, who you know at least on paper were you know infinitely better suited to be president of the United States than him. Mm-hmm. He won uh, against all of that, and he won against all of that because he grasps grasped something that has been in the air in the United States in particular, uh, and that is specifically that America, a broad swathe of America, uh, feels like the two parties, uh, Democrats and Republicans, are out of out of sync and out of touch with them uh largely because they do the bidding of big money donors uh and mm-hmm. people who have power and influence uh typically on the coast uh and these are people who oftentimes have been left behind by technology uh and globalization uh and they have effectively with the, with, the, with Trump grasping this and grasping that that's the way grassroots republicans and grassroots conservatives were starting to feel uh Trump Rode those emotions and manipulated those emotions very, very successfully. And indeed, in the process, has transformed the conservative movement, uh, in the United States. It's not traditional conservatism anymore. It's turned back the clock conservatism to an mm-hmm. era where things were better, uh, you know, where life was simpler, uh, for an awful lot of people. Uh, and I think that that coincides directly with what you've seen in these populist movements on the right. Um, throughout much of the Western world and indeed elsewhere in the world uh, where uh, political candidates are, are looking at people who've been dispossessed uh, by, again, technology and globalization, who don't like the fact that the collective skin complexion of their society is darkening. And they're manipulating the fear, manipulating the economic hurt uh, for political gain. Um, and, I, you know, at the end of the, the, the uh, day, who do I hold responsible for that for some, to some extent? Mm-hmm. It is. Um, the so-called establishment political parties throughout Western Europe and in the United States, who saw this coming uh, and willfully, instead of addressing people's legitimate concerns, instead of doing that, um, they really put their heads in the sand and allowed these things to grow and grow and grow uh, until they became politically successful movements. And I think tackling that uh, is going to be a challenge on an ongoing basis for um, the parties. Uh, of the centre uh, in Europe, and hopefully, you know those, those moderates that are left uh, in in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's quite incredible to have seen that. I mean, we witnessed it here with people like Nigel Farage, who you know was a bit of a laughing stock. And last night, funny, I saw Jay Leto, a clip from um, the '90s where he. Uh, did a sketch about Trump, you know, suggesting that he becomes president. And I was just watching it going, wow, <laughs> how uh, yeah. scary is that? And it actually happened. But just being more specific, uh, Jack and I have been speaking a bit about the um, Britain, I suppose, looking at one of those European countries. Is or seems to be adopting a more patriotic and nationalistic identity in the wake of Brexit, and it's not surprising given the mandate upon which Brexit, the Brexit referendum, was based. I think an anti-immigration yeah. rhetoric, basically, and we see more Union Jacks and government addresses. The concept of sovereignty has been resurrected massively. Arguments over statues, what else? Anti anti-immigration stance really has taken hold. Yeah. Um, so just. I don't know if, if Trump I mean, we can't say that he's influenced the rise of nationalism, you've just really addressed that. But have you noticed that? Is this something that you've noticed just in terms of your political observations growing maybe in this part of the world? Um, has that emanated from America or is that just something again that's happened because of what you've just suggested around politics?
2: You know, look, I, I think I think it's the there are very similar uh, factors, uh, that, that are, that are at play. I, I, think that it is this climate of, um, of, you know, being, uh, left behind, of, of things marching on, uh, and people feeling ill-equipped to deal with new realities. I, I recall being in the northeast of England, for instance, uh, in the months prior to, uh, the Brexit result. And I, I think it, it was, it was palpable. Uh, what was in the air it was that um, that kind of nationalism that kind of insularity and very much in what I would regard again as that kind of turn back the clock let's stop things uh, and let's turn back to a nicer time mm-hmm. uh, of course that's largely impossible but that does not stop politicians from appealing at a very base level to that notion uh, and that let's not let's not for one second uh, mistake how powerful that can be how powerful that sentiment uh, of the good old days uh, when things were simpler and easier, how powerful that can play in people's minds, uh, especially people uh, who are hurting. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that that's uh, no doubt uh, a very big factor. And I, I should say, on the one hand, um, you know, at one level, there really is nothing wrong. Right, in some sense, patriotism is a great thing. And in some sense, nationalism and being proud of your country, is no, there's nothing wrong with that yeah. whatsoever. It's when it's a, when it's a proxy for something else. However, um, that's where the danger is. When it is a proxy for, we don't want outsiders. We want to turn inward. Uh, we want to pretend as if we can make things the way that they used to be. Um, it's both morally wrong at one level and it's foolhardy uh, at another because it's simply uh, impossible to achieve. So I think that those factors. Uh, are usually at play, and indeed, uh, I think we'll continue to see them out. I know there are elections there uh, yep. today. I know in certain quarters in in, in England, um, we will see that play that dynamic play out very strongly uh, in council elections, and even in places like Hartley Pool, I know that there is a by election. I think that those factors will be to the top uh, of some voters' minds and will tip the balance in many of those races.
0: Absolutely, we watch. Um To see how those turn out. So just, I suppose, getting back to yourself, Larry, and your work. I know you from being a former student in NUIG many, many years ago. And our listeners, a lot of them, I suppose, are aspiring lawyers. We've mentioned that before. And students as well who are interested in um, working in this area. I suppose could you just maybe give us some insight into your background how you ended up working where you are i know you're very much involved in it's like an intersection between politics government and law uh, just um provide us with a little bit of background and maybe how you might encourage people to get into your area of work
2: okay um well in in short I, you know as my accent gives away i'm <laughs> born and raised in the city of boston uh, and I was I, I practiced law. I started off as a in law practice there, um, and I didn't like the work that I was doing. I was doing primarily uh, insurance defense work. It was very far from the intellectual aspects of the law that I enjoyed, mm-hmm. and uh, what I regarded as the transformative potential uh, for law. Uh, especially in terms of the intersection between law and politics that you mentioned. Uh, so uh, I spent a couple of years at it and knew I needed to change and literally stumbled into a visiting fellowship for uh, an American lawyer to teach legal research and writing in NUI Galway. And uh, I stumbled into that for a one-year appointment, and unfortunately or fortunately from their perspective, <laughs> they couldn't get rid of me. Uh, and here I You're still am there. all these years all these years later. And what it's given me an outlet to do uh, is not only to comment in politics and do things like that, which Mm -hmm. I think, I hope anyway, uh, is important, but also to, uh, through, for instance, our clinical legal education program, which I founded and direct, um, we have students uh, every year who are placed with uh, a range of practitioners, with NGOs, uh, with government bodies, uh, mainly working on public interest law, mainly working uh, with the idea that the law and the legal system can not just be tools to safeguard the current order, but also can be tools that, when used properly, uh, can be uh, really powerful forces uh, to achieve social social justice. Um, and that's one of the things I suppose has always guided me. Uh, it guided me when I took a two-year leave of absence to direct the Public Interest Law Alliance, which um, has successfully now got Irish law firms of all yeah. sizes, big and small.
0: I working. In it on, it's a fantastic organization.
2: Yeah, yeah and do, doing pro bono work and bringing some of that expertise to bear, uh, you know, again, for people in for individuals and groups who are most marginalized mm-hmm. in society. And one of the crucial things in that, I, I think, Sarah, is that um, making a lot of Uh, Big firm lawyers, you know, people who have gone into large firm practice Mm -hmm. and who are very successful and have done so for all sorts of good reasons, but also bringing them to the coalface and reigniting them, uh, I suppose, some of the things they may have learned while they they were in university uh, about how powerful the law can be Mm -hmm. uh, and what the real obligations that uh, the massive obligations, in my view, uh, of a lawyer are uh, to not just to the law, but to society more broadly. So. Uh, I'm in a really privileged position to, you know, uh, and I'm now back in the university, but mm. to be involved in so much of that and hopefully um, not into brainwashing young minds, but into, into, into te- letting students become more aware uh, of what they can do uh, with their law degree and they can use, it, use them in all sorts of different ways uh, for good causes. And I'm one of those people who's an eternal idealist. Uh, I happen to think that most young people uh, go into law study. Uh, for really good, really high-minded reasons. Uh, and I think sometimes they need to be reminded of that. Um, and that's one of the things I try to do on an ongoing basis. And, and I would strongly say to anybody listening to the podcast, law students and people starting off in their legal careers, uh, is that the rewards uh, of doing so, uh, I think, are vast. Uh, and again, I would just encourage them to remember, being a lawyer is an awesome thing to achieve, but with it comes uh, awesome duties to uh, to society into uh, to people, and that can be achieved all sorts of different ways, whether through the law, whether through politics, whether through activism, others, all sorts of different routes in which that can be achieved.
0: Absolutely, and I think we need more of that encouragement here. And you do see bigger firms getting more involved in issues as well, and I think that's something we're trying to encourage here in the North too, through this forum. So just finally, um, a question that we ask all of our guests. How important is activism in this era? Um, in your opinion, of course, this, this podcast was born out of uh, the comments against activists, lawyers, lefty lawyers, all the do-gooders out there. And uh, how would you encourage listeners to make change happen, particularly those who we've just discussed that are interested in working in, in the law? How important is that to you?
2: Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it's hugely uh, important. And I, I think that there are different uh, tactics that can be taken in terms of advancing the causes that I think we all care uh, very deeply about. Uh, and one of the things that I, that I might stress, and I might, I might take it a little bit different tack than others who commented on the question. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm very much into, uh, a, in terms of lawyers, uh, is their capacity to be advocates and to distill down, distill that a little bit further, their capacity to persuade. Mm-hmm. Um, there are blunt instruments in law and in the legal system which of course have their place. But I think that activists, can, especially the activists who are trained as lawyers, uh, can play a really powerful role in persuading. And that sometimes incrementalism, while it can be dismissed as uh, ineffective or tokenistic and, and too slow moving, et cetera, uh, I sometimes think that that's downplayed as how much it can achieve. Uh, and I think that uh, public interest law and public interest lawyers uh, who are as much about advocating and persuading uh, can make a significant difference over time because an awful lot of the time, uh, the changes and the things that we want to accomplish uh, because of the systems that we live in, which are, again, I think the best of a bad lot of choices, they're democratic and they require oftentimes uh, popular will or majorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the persuasion and in getting into that space, uh, and I think a law degree and law training helps significantly in that regard, can be every bit as effective uh, on, in a whole range of different spheres uh, outside just the courtroom uh, or the parliament. So that would be one of the things that I think is really, really important to get across, not to diminish the significance of that stuff, uh, but to say it has a, a really, really crucial role. Uh, and I'd encourage people uh, to look at it from that point of view, as well as, of course, uh, the big legislative uh, and courtroom victories.
0: Absolutely. Well, they're great words to finish on and a real insightful perspective into that into that question that I'm sure people would really appreciate. Larry, thank you so much from Jack and myself for joining us today. It's been fantastic to go through all of those different but related issues.
2: Thank you and very much, Larry. My pleasure. It's great to be with you.
0: We hope to have you back soon. Thanks. This podcast was
1: recorded in Granite Podcast Studio.